This Much We Know is a podcast offering an honest and informative perspective of the realities and motivations of setting up a social enterprise. We'll be joined by guest social entrepreneurs and charity leaders whose trading models work to end homelessness. We'll be sharing their stories, tips, and of course, their facepalm moments. So today we're joined by Matt Harrison, Deputy CEO from HomelessLink. Matt, welcome. Hi, Murphy. Hi. Matt, in the interest of the audience and getting a right picture of of you and your background, can you introduce yourself, um, your role at HomelessLink and a bit about your background? Yep. So I am, as you said, the Deputy CEO at HomelessLink. I've been at HomelessLink for about 12 years and before that ran another charity that became part of HomelessLink. My career started in the homelessness sector in 1986. I started doing working in advice centres, day centres, hostels, before going into more back office work, working on information charities, directories, websites, IT systems. The theme of my career, I I did a degree in computer science, and the theme of my career from, from day one has been how do we use technology? to help end homelessness. But along the way, it's been, how do we use technology and business to help end homelessness? And so at HomelessLink, I'm responsible for Inform, which is our case management system, which is a quite significant social enterprise that we run inside HomelessLink. I'm also responsible for all of our grants investments projects. I'm Murphy's boss. So (laughs) good behavior. She has to ask me nice questions uh, or I will get very cross. I'm also responsible, however, at Homelessing for all our finances and central services and HR and all of those things, as well as you know, the service delivery of 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 lots of our social enterprise activity. Just a few hats then. Several hats. Excellent. And now, now I realise you're Murphy's boss. That's why she told me to ask all the hard questions and leave her the easy ones. Is that right? <laughs> I knew she was up to something. Honestly, excellent. Good. Well, good to have you on, Matt. You've done so much, haven't you? You're our second guest in this sort of series that's been in the sort of sector for a number of decades, which I think is brilliant, actually, because seasons one and two are very sort of we've got some people that have only just literally just started out in the sector and so it's it's really nice to have a, a sort of variety what have been some of your highlights for you in terms of enterprise what are the things that you would look back on fondly and say yeah actually that was a really good enterprise we established there or a really good piece of work yeah there's a few i think when the internet arrived i was really keen on how we would use that technology to really make a difference in homelessness and 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 advice and the areas I was working on. So some big highlights would be a project called Hostels Online that we set up in the 90s that connected together emergency hostels. And it it was basically say, you know, in those days you go into a travel agent and they would look and find the hotel rooms on their systems and book them. I mean, now, of course, you do all over the internet, but we were trying to replicate that. If you wanted to get a bed in a hostel, you go to an advice centre, they'd ring round all the advice centres till they found the hostels till they found a bed. We wanted to build something which gave them all a screen and did it automatically. We built another project I'm really proud of was called UK Advice Finder. We, We got one of the very first grants from the National Lottery to build a national database of advice centres, but we sold it. That was the difference was we built it as an online database 
that people would buy from us and subscribe to. And although we got that lottery grant at the beginning of the project to, to kick it off in, in 1995, that was the only grant funding that went into that project. It became entirely self-sustaining through people that used it paying for it. Charities, local authorities, commercial organizations that wanted to have access to all the advice centers in the country paying a subscription fee for it. And that model is one that I've, I've taken on in, a, in several areas. Another one, the one I'm you know, most proud of is Inform. Inform is a case management system used by 300 homelessness charities with 18,000 users. It's a, we've got 30 staff at Homeless Link supporting it. It's built on the Salesforce platform. So it uses really modern IT but it's designed to be affordable for homelessness charities to use to record all the work they do with homeless people. And they need that service. Why buy that from a private company? Why not buy that from a charity? So that's been the theme of my social enterprise work. It's like, what, what services do charities need to deliver their mission? Of those things, and there are hundreds of them, you know, we buy stationery, we, we pay staff, we rent offices, we buy computers. Some of them, it's right to buy them from the private sector, but some of them, it's better to buy them from other charities. And that's, that's been my, the theme of my, of, of my approach to social enterprise and social business. Mm. Some, yeah, some great sort of different, different models there, but we'll have that key similarity of ethical products, I guess, keeping things in the social sector where they can be. In terms of the, the positives, you know, you've given some great examples there. Looking backwards, this podcast, as you know, is is sort of centered around the idea of learning from failure and sharing mistakes through your, you know, different experiences as frontline working on social enterprises on grant panels, investment panels. What are the key learnings that you've taken? I think there are some really interesting learnings around understanding customers and understanding what customers need and what customers will pay for. And those that can conflict with charity values. So I developed a project uh, with, with my team in about mid-2000s to produce directories of homelessness services in cities across the UK. So we, we'd been running this brilliant directory project in London for years, the London Hostels Directory. It was the size of a phone book, if anyone can still remember what a phone book looked like. It was 500 pages listed every homelessness service in London. We were approached by local authorities to produce directories for them. So for Manchester, Bradford, Edinburgh, Dublin, Bristol, Nottingham, Wolverhampton, etc. One of the things we found in that, in that business was that it was a brilliant idea that was never going to make money because the, 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 what the local authority wanted to pay for was a directory that was good enough. What we wanted to provide was a directory that was perfect. And so we spent more money than we were charging on making sure that the data in the directory was really good that the quality of what we were delivering was brilliant but it was way higher than the quality that the customer was prepared to pay for and i think that's one of the challenges in uh, in business i mean you can build an enormous business by selling 20 pound notes for 10 pounds i mean fundamentally you can build an unlimited business and and a lot of startups do that they make they lose a lot of money by by selling things of high value for less than they cost to produce. And in the charity sector, we can inadvertently fall into that because 
we have a commitment to delivering products of re and services of really high quality. And we're absolutely focused on doing that. But we have to remember that ultimately there is a cost to that quality and someone has to pay for that. And in a lot of charities, you pay for that through public funding or through fundraising or through grant funding. But if you're running a social business, ultimately the customers are paying for it. And you've got to be able to communicate that value proposition really well and get a real a consensus between, between you as a producer of something and the consumer about what they're, what, what they're paying for. So I, I just think that's, um, you just hit the nail on the head, really. I think as, you know, working in the charity space, social entrepreneurs, particularly traditional charities that are developing trading models, you know, you've got this product, but the, the extra work that goes in that's kind of hidden isn't included in that price tag. You know, so that it, you can maybe get a bigger market, but actually it's, it isn't necessarily a sustainable model. You sort of talked about your position as a sort of entrepreneur, someone involved in, in developing these. From a funder position, thinking about panels and things, what kind of questions would you be asking organisations to understand that, you know, value proposition, the return on investment? I mean, I think a lot of it is about thinking about how long it takes for, to, to, to achieve success. And rightly, when people put together business plans and proposals, they assume, you know, the successful option. They assume we'll launch, we'll launch it this year, you know, we'll lose a bit of money in the first year, we'll double our, our income in the second year, we'll double it again in the third year. By the fourth year, we're making millions. But actually, things always go wrong. It always takes longer to hire, the, to find the right staff. It always takes, there are always going to be problems that you cannot predict in those, those things. So I always want to know what happens if your sales grow at half the, the rate you're wanting? What happens if you're, if it's going to take you three years to do something rather than one year? Because it's a lot easier to deal with problems of success than problems of failure. So if you grow faster than you expect, it, obviously it causes problems. Not every business is scalable. Not every, there isn't an infinite supply of really good people. You can often find two or three great people to launch a team, to run to launch a product. But when you need to find 10 people to join your team, it gets harder. But those problems are easier than problems of not having the right product or not having the right customers because you simply can't do anything without income. So I would really look at like, it's amazing. That plan is amazing. But what happens if it all goes wrong? How will you still make it succeed? Because something will go wrong. Yeah, well, and, and it's, yeah, and that is the, the common thread, isn't it? In all businesses, something goes wrong at some point or something doesn't go as planned. Have you got any examples, Matt, of like a sort of what I describe as an absolute howler of a sort of facepalm moment or, or something that's gone terribly wrong, either that you've done or that you've been involved with in the sort of social enterprise space where you sort of then take stock of it and go, flipping it, what were we thinking? That's, that was madness. That was never going to work. Have you got any sort of classic examples like that? I'm not sure I've got a really good example of my own work, and I'm not sure I really want to embarrass someone by talking about <laughs> somebody, you know, else's. somebody else's <laughs> problem that I probably should have spotted and not invested in or not made, it, made grant funding in. I mean, we, I think the reality is we make mistakes every single day. Right, we all do. Our job is to try and is for those mistakes to be manageable. I'm on the board of a charity which really looked at social franchising. I'm deeply skeptical about some of those things because I think that we often in our sector build businesses without moats 
with very low costs of entry. So it's very difficult to stop other people copying ideas. And franchising doesn't really work. You know, how can you franchise a cafe? Anyone can open a cafe, right? We all know what a cafe looks like. They're fairly cheap to run. They're fairly easy to run. I say that with the, you know, the absolute lack of of experience of ever running a cafe. They're probably really hard to run, but, <laughs> but they look on the face of it like really easy to run businesses. But but franchising is quite hard. And I think social franchising is quite hard. So the charity I'm on the board of really looks at social franchising and spent quite a lot of other people's money on, on that. And I think without any success to date. In terms of own projects, yeah, I can think of a project that I was working on that was a brilliant project, absolutely right for its time and totally needed and absolutely failed. Um, it was a project I was involved in called the Change Account. It was, we set it up about six years ago, partnership between several organizations to produce a, an inclusive bank account that anybody could sign up to that would, that would accept people in debt, homeless people, people with impaired credit history, people with no experience of managing money that would provide them with a bank account that would provide them with a bank account that enable them to take advantage of direct debit payments on their rent, that would enable them to take and their electricity bills, but but protect their personal money so it wouldn't get taken if they, you know, the direct debit could couldn't come out of their personal budget. That give them a really transparent personal account, debit card, cash cash card, savings pots, lockable savings pots, direct debits, every, a really modern bank account available to all, and died it was a horrible failure it was a horrible failure because it took too long to raise the money too long to build the technology and when you build a banking product there are an enormous number of things that you never knew you needed to have a supplier to do like literally hundreds of different contracts you need you know you need someone to be able to print your debit card you need a separate company to, be able to deliver your debit card you need a separate company to be able to deal with lost and stolen on those cards there are lots of you know lots of moving pieces you need to fit together and in doing in getting that to market and we did get it to market we blew we spent what would have been the marketing budget and you cannot launch a product into a consumer space with no marketing budget because no one knows about it and no one will buy it and so sure enough a year later it effectively folded i mean it carried it staggered on for a bit longer it was a brilliant idea absolutely at the right time it took too long to bring it to market and there was no marketing budget mm. It, for, the, for the listeners, Simon and I have both been nodding along quite enthusiastically um, hearing about Matt, Matt talking through this in terms of, yeah, it's need, you know, you, clearly this is a product that's needed. And we are seeing things in this space, you know, proxy address, the new HSBC bank app that, that is sort of touching on it. But yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point as well, that failing isn't necessarily due to always due to a poor business model you know there's lots of surrounding issues that can impact it and, and it's how we talk about that failing and learning from it to to help move things forward as soon as you started that one i was thinking i'm glad that somebody's had a go at that but you must have been mad because it is so complicated isn't it it's so difficult but and yet and it's so frustrating though because when i was sort of working in homelessness sort of every day the banking thing used to absolutely drive me around the bend it used to make me so angry about people not being able to have access to bank accounts and I had that thought yeah no I know and it's still not it's still not dealt with satisfactorily isn't it but I've had those thoughts around some of these sort of startup banks that are coming out now and thinking oh I wonder if one of these one of these 
these banks will actually make it work, could actually get around the sort of systematic failures there. But yeah, it's definitely yeah such a difficult issue. It's a it? really important issue. It's re- it, we haven't solved the problem. It does look like some of the major clearing banks are looking at it as part of their CSR offer mm. in terms of making basic bank accounts available and free banking. And I think, and, and obviously we've got all of the challenger banks and some of those are, are doing using a lot of this technology are, but a lot of, are they really inclusive? I don't think so yet. I think there's still a need there, but uh, it was possibly, just possibly slightly too ambitious for an undercapitalized social enterprise to try and enter that market. So there should be limits to our ambition in some ways. So there are some things that there are some problems which which are really hard to solve. They need solving, they're really hard to solve. But you also you have a commit you do need to do them properly because you are actually you know, I have the bank account that I opened when I went to university 40 years ago. I've relied on that all my life to ask some of the most vulnerable people in society to put all of their money into a untested undercapitalized bank it wasn't legally a bank it was a technically it was a prepaid debit card with a with a not with with a savings account behind it but it it was i think you need to make commitments when you make commitments to people to look after their money to look after their data to look after those things which are important to them you also have to you can't do that as an experiment you have to be able to commit to it for the long term so i think that was you know, I still think that project should have worked. It was so needed, such a good idea, just just undercapitalized was the biggest problem. Is there a sort of particular milestone or point within that sort of journey from, you know, developing the concept um, to finding out that the, the, the sort of budget wasn't there to, to move it forward that you think actually an intervention there would have been really useful or a conversation at this point? So I think there were, the, the, there were two learnings from that. One is it was a partnership project. And I was a junior partner in that project Mm. as an investor, as a stakeholder. And sometimes you can see something going wrong and you can't, you don't have the the power to step in and grab the steering wheel. Mm. And secondly, and it comes back to what I was saying earlier, the optimistic projections about rollout were clearly over-optimistic. And the, the, the decision to spend the marketing budget on on finishing the development work was clearly wrong but also right because you couldn't market something that didn't work mm. and there was a point you know when the development budget had been spent and the project and the bud and the product wasn't ready for market that was where the problem was the problem was not stopping at that at that point the project was going to fail it needed more capital because carrying on to to finish the product was not going to work anyway it was a great project there was really good people involved in it it very nearly worked like it that's good a good failure it very nearly worked but it didn't quite (laughs) it's good no it's really good and i think you've demonstrated really the yeah it's a really complex area to get involved in as well isn't it it's so complicated um so i think it's a yeah i've got a lot of respect for anyone that's willing to have a go at that quite frankly so Brilliant, brilliant face palm sort of failure example that. Murphy, next question over to you for this one. Yeah, um, so I want to bring it back to the funding side, you know, sort of linking it from the last question, that seemed to be a big barrier. Obviously at Homeless Link, you know, 
there's lots of different ideas of sort of diversifying income. We're involved in the enterprise program, social investment, grant funding. For for you, sort of looking at the landscape at the moment, what do you think the biggest challenges are going to be for social enterprises trying to access funding in the next sort of decade? I mean, on one level, it's a lot easier than it used to be. I mean, I think the if I go back to when when we started doing social enterprise work, you would get a bit of grant funding to pump prime, prime a project. But I've seen a lot of projects which couldn't break out of that grant dependency, did what all startups do and priced the product too cheaply and then didn't know how to increase the price into what it needs to be to be sustainable. I think that that is easier now. I think actually there are, I think the, 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 the social investment market, the startup mentality that is in there, the experience of lots of entrepreneurs in running, in running startups, the business experience, lots of charities are just people running charities are better at business than they used to be. Lots of CEOs are better at understanding how trading businesses work than they were. So I think the market is actually easier. The challenge is that it's really hard to do a startup business. It requires 100% of your focus. And I think for a lot of charities, rightly, most of their focus should be on their core business. And I think a lot of charities have looked at, at diversification into social enterprise as a way of protecting the core business and possibly underinvested time in making that business work. I think we've also had a particular challenge that the easiest businesses for charities to get into have been retail and hospitality. And those businesses were shuttered by the pandemic. Hmm. And they're reopening now, but they were all the charities that have taken all the advice and learning from austerity and the reduction in local authority income to diversify their income streams, open chains of charity shops to take advantage of the rateable exemptions for charities that had opened up cafes because they're low business, low margin businesses, low cost to entry, where they can really invest in in getting their beneficiaries to work in them they were the ones who were most affected by the first lockdown yeah it's an interesting one isn't it because I think work you know we work on the enterprise development program which is exactly that you know supporting organizations who are wanting to diversify income to look at trading models as a as a route to do that um and of course yeah that the, the pandemic um wasn't kind to to many of those and I think now you know post-pandemic as, as we're sort of moving moving back into things being open and, and businesses running whilst there are new opportunities to, to do things, there is also a real nervousness about the sustainability of employment in those sectors. Um, you know, charities are looking at these models often as, as a route for training and employment for, for their service users to, to get some sort of work experience or, or routes into employment. And there is some fearfulness in that space. Now. There is, but the pandemic was a, was a single event. It's mm. taken us two years to possibly get to you know the, the late stages of it but the fundamentals the the charities that, whose businesses have survived to now are going to be in a stronger place because they, they've demonstrated resilience over the last two years taken advantage of what funding support mechanisms were available take advantage of the you know of furloughs and grant and extra covid grants and done and and managed to those ones that are, that are still trading are going to be in a really strong place going forward because they've mm. demonstrated resilience which is the number one thing you need to make a business work 
Yeah, I agree. And the resilience has been, you know, extraordinary. Being able to sort of, yeah, kind of have this overview of the organisations that we work with, you know, the Homeless Link membership, it is quite extraordinary how how people have, you know, put their heads heads and hearts in it and, and got through it and come out the other side. Yeah, and it's because the people are 100% committed to the vision of the uh, of the charities they work for. And, and that passion, that commitment, that dedication is what gives you resilience as an organisation. You know, it's not always enough. It has been incredibly impressive. And I think so. I, I think there is a, a real opportunity there for those businesses that were affected by the pandemic, but are still going. I think the, there are two other things. I think the I think there was a sense of community developed across the country through the early stage of the pandemic, which we're seeing again right now with the response to Ukraine. There's lots of younger people wanting to put their business skills, their entrepreneurial skills into mission-driven organizations. The people you've been interviewing on the podcast for the last two series are examples of that. Those people who want to take that startup mentality, that entrepreneurial skill, that, that passion to build a business, but build a business for a social purpose. I think there are some astonishing examples of people. You know, I look at Fat Macy's opening a restaurant in the middle of lockdown and it's a success i look at you know at beam wanting to take technology to help homeless people and today announcing that three they've raised three million pounds in donations since they started i think these sorts of businesses which take where and it's it's about the passion of the founders it's about the commitment of the teams they build and it's about that continuous connection to their to their mission and the people they're helping and using technology and social media to continually promote what are really simple, obvious ideas. And those really simple, obvious, brilliant ideas will succeed with the right, you know, they, they are more likely to succeed now because the, the cost of promoting them, Instagram is amazing mm. as, you know, promoting a business, which you couldn't do 20 years ago. So there are, there are opportunities that exist today that did not exist five or 10 years or 20 years ago. And what do you think, Matt, in terms of um, startup social enterprises, what's the most important thing that in those early stages somebody can do? What, what for you, with your experience, what's the most important thing that somebody should, should be doing in those sort of found, founding years for a social enterprise? What, what's the top tips? You need to have a proposition for your business that you can explain in 30 seconds and people go, oh, that's so obvious and so brilliant. You need to have a team, if it is one person originally, who are 100% committed to it. And you need to narrow your offer to the, the smallest part of the business that you can make work. You know, we all want to build a giant we have big people have big ideas want to do everything but narrow narrow your offer down to a niche where you are the best where no one is delivering something as good as what you're doing and do that and when you make that work then do the next thing yeah i like that finding finding your space your niche i think something you said earlier as well matt is the sort of scenario testing you know, being able to work out that, you know, if year one doesn't go this, what does year three look like? And I think that's a really, really good piece of advice. 
being able to go to to funders to program managers and be able to say you know these are three different ways it could look like and this is how we'd manage each of these some really useful tips there for, for listeners going back to your you know your intrigue I really would like to go on I mean probably could talk for hours about the idea for sort of tech for good space whole different whole different series but just to touch on this a little bit if you were going to start a social enterprise now what would it look like I think we would use technology because technology connects people but you can't just use technology you have to have you know ultimately in charities and in social businesses we're providing services to people to help other people and we and what technology does is it reduces the cost of that transaction and it makes things possible on a scale that we didn't have before so as i said before instagram enables us to communicate marketing messages influencing messages to a wider population for less cost technology enables us to scale businesses better it enables us to reduce the costs of experimentation and running businesses but ultimately the purpose of it is to help the services to individuals to individual people and that's what i see that we would we would do it's use technology to reduce cost and increase impact okay so it's kind of facilitating better access yeah yeah of itself yeah it's relatively boring you know hardware software these things are you know i mean i like them but they're 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 fundamentally not they're not the the important thing the important thing is what you do with them Mm. okay and is there any particular space in the tech world that that you're i don't know excited about what what's out there at the moment or seeing any sort of big things in i mean i said before beam i think is really interesting i think that the i think employment is a massive one how we with homelessness how we get homeless people into employment how we get homeless people into their own housing i think that you know there are loads of things we can do around making the homelessness sector you know a homeless thing we have 900 members and those are those members are delivering amazing services and obviously there's work we can do to make those help help our members deliver better services but the two ways we actually end homelessness are firstly reducing the preventing homelessness in the first place and secondly providing long-term sustainable routes out of homelessness for homeless people and the prevention part i think there's there's work we can do on access to advice on using technology using ai using data to try and identify the when people are at risk of homelessness earlier as possible intervening as as soon as we can rather than just a point of crisis and i think in terms of routes out of homelessness it's training skills employment and housing and then the last part where technology can play is on building community because if someone listening to this podcast was to lose their home today most of us would not end up sleeping on the streets tomorrow we have money we have resources but we have the support of friends and family and community and what we need to do for you know to help people who have ended up sleeping on the streets we need to give them access to housing access to employment so they can pay for that housing but really importantly access to community that will give them the social capital to rebuild their lives and to prevent things happening again and to help them prevent 
other people go falling into homelessness. Mm. No, I and think technology can yeah, help with all no, of I those think things. So the community thing and belonging, like working in the sector, that everything, you know, you go in these random thoughts, you're like, this is the, the thing we need to be really focused upon. And every time I do that, it loops back to belonging and community. So actually one of the routes out of long-term homelessness is community and belonging. And if you can achieve that, that helps people to move move through homelessness and out of it, I think. So I find, yes, we could talk all day on that issue, but I do think it is something, sometimes we overlook it potentially, you know, we overlook the power of it, I guess. And that's really important. But I like the fact you've given it a technology angle as well, around how do we use technology to to accelerate that potentially for people, I guess. But I think that's a positive part of social media. Yeah. yeah. It's that social media builds help build community and help build identity and a sense of belonging. And if we can tap into those parts of it, then that's brilliant. If we can tap into the uh, social enterprises to give people employment, to give people skills, give people training, to open up routes. If we can tap into the sense that our community, our country has this shared passion to help people in need that has always been there, but maybe it's been it's been made a bit more possible by some of the learnings from the pandemic. And we might see the expression of that in the wave of people wanting to raise money and donate goods to, to Ukraine and to offer, you know, offer housing to refugees. Yeah, I do agree. I think there's, there's lots of positive social media has. Um, go, going back to the piece on belonging, I think it's, yeah, vital um, for, for everyone to have that. But it's something that's really hard to quantify in terms of, you know, impact reporting you know how do you how do you express someone else's sense of belonging you know I'm not saying it's impossible and I think there's some brilliant examples that we've seen in terms of like you know case studies and narrative but it is is a hard thing to express I guess yes it's kind of intangible in a way isn't it that's what makes it challenging to work out yeah how do we capture that yeah that is yeah that's definitely a challenge for sure but it's something we need to work upon I think perhaps there's a technological solution in there somewhere Matt's really thinking about what he could have the developers scheme up, isn't he? I can tell. I can almost hear the cogs turning. He's got he's got a plan. And I think there are people out there who really understand the technology. I think there are people out there who really understand the, 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 what's possible. And you look at the uh, online communities, you look at, at the way in which young people are using technology in in new and interesting ways. And applying those to social problems is going to be fascinating. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's so much potential, isn't there? Really, you know, it's we can't even think up what 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 could be happening. So I wanted to ask one more question, and Simon, I'll I'll hand back to you if you've got any further ones. Just thinking about you know your role sort of within Homeless Link, sitting on investment committees, grant panels. Is there any sort of key things outside of a criteria that you're really looking for when you're reading applications? You know, what is it that that's really exciting for you? I think it's it's passion. Mm. I think it's understanding when when people come up with ideas and they are so passionate and convinced that they're good ideas that that's when you want to invest in them. You're not investing in in businesses or in charities you're investing in people Mm. and we've seen through the grant making that we've done through the investments we've it's been a whole range of organizations established ones new ones uh 
ones that haven't even been set up yet. And the ones you're excited by are the ones where there's a founder or a couple of founders and they have got a burning desire to solve this problem and, and, and are 100% convinced that their slightly insane idea is going to be the one that works. Yes. And, and those are the ones that are exciting. The ones that you go, it sounds mad to me, but I'm sure that you're going to make it work or make something like it work. Yeah. I, I, to be honest, I'd have to completely agree if the question was reversed. Um, <laughs> it, it's almost infectious, isn't it? That kind of just pure desire to, to do something that you think is going to help other people. Um, yeah. yeah, great answer. Yeah, Thank you. pretty much describes everyone you've had on your enterprise development programme. <laughs> In, in a couple of sentences because they are yeah some some of the most unique individuals that i've come across are on that program and they're yeah so i think you've yeah captured it beautifully there matt uh, matt really good to have you on today thank you for joining us today and look forward to seeing what you come up with next certainly in the technology space anyway absolute pleasure and i think i think this podcast is an example of how we use technology to spread a message in a different way this is something you've done and you've built this podcast and this community of people listening to it and participating in. I think it's absolutely brilliant and a brilliant example of, of how we can, at a relatively low cost, use a new technology to achieve what we're trying to do, which is to get people to listen to people. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe for more episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter at thismuch underscore we know or email us thismuchweknow at homelesslink.org.uk. 